0: Welcome to The Logbook. I'm your host, Lucas Weekly. This episode is supported by you, the listeners, through Patreon. Head over to thelogbookpodcast.com for more information. This time, Travis Burns tells the story of how he and five other pilots integrated the HC-144 Ocean Sentry into the U.S. Coast Guard as their new primary surveillance airplane.
1: Out of high school, I guess my goal was to be a pilot, and uh, I realized that uh, a really cool way to do that would be to go through the military, and it's also a really cheap way to go to be a pilot, <laughs> and I was thinking Air Force, and Navy, and had no idea, even though I grew up on the coast of Maine, that the Coast Guard had anything but small boats. I got this little postcard in the mail during the summer of my junior year saying there was this thing called the Coast Guard Academy, which I knew about the other ones, but I didn't know there was a Coast Guard Academy, so... I thought that's cool. The Coast Guard's got some some really neat missions, and uh, they've got a very neat peacetime mission. So I I applied for that, and somehow they they let me in. That's how it all started, back in 1991. You know, I had to go through the academy, and then they make everybody go to a ship for a couple years, prove yourself that you that you, you know Coast Guard's all about being a a seaman first, and then if you can be a good seaman, and you can then you can compete to go to flight school. So. I successfully competed after two years at sea and went through naval flight training in Pensacola. We share the Coast Guard and the Navy, it's the same exact uh, training program. And so of course I flew T-34s, they hadn't gotten the T-6 yet back then. And and then I flew King Airs for my advanced multi-engine training. And then I came out of King Airs, assigned to Mobile, Alabama to fly HE-25 Guardians, which nobody calls them that, we call them Falcon 20s or Falcon Jets. So I was assigned there, I went through a seven week transition course training to go from the King Air to the Falcon jet, and uh, and I flew Falcons for 12 years or so. Uh, I think I did two and a half tours, three tours flying Falcons. And then after that, I flew the CASA 235, which we call the HC-144 Ocean Sentry, the military designation. Um, I had about 3,000, uh, about 2,700 flight hours, and. Yeah, I was, I was stationed in Corpus Christi, Texas. It was my second tour flying Falcons. It was my second tour as an instructor pilot. I was in administration, uh, I was called the admin officer, so I had about 750 people that I was in charge of the H human resources type stuff for. <laughs> and it took up a lot of my time, and uh, to the point where flying wasn't as much fun as it used to be. So I was looking for something else to do, and the Coast Guard was bringing on this new aircraft to replace the Falcon. The Falcon had been around since 1981. And it was a really, really good, solid airplane, very well built like a tank. But for maritime surveillance, it maybe wasn't the smartest thing to have a multi-engine jet. It had about a three and a half hour range. And the slowest you could really get the thing down to was around 180 knots. So for getting down and actually seeing what was going on down low, it wasn't the, the, maybe the best airplane they were looking to replace it, and I saw the opportunity to jump into this new program, so I applied, and uh, they, they managed to, uh, what we call short tour, where they pulled me out of that tour in Corpus Christi early to, to be one of the um, cadre of six guys that was part of this new program to bring this new program online. So we all showed up in uh, Mobile, Alabama, which was our initial duty station, and uh, to, to bring this new program on, online, we, had, uh, we checked in. We said, where's our office? They said, no, we haven't figured any of that out yet. We had no offices, no place to go, no airplane, no nothing. And kind of had to fend for ourselves, but we had a really great group, uh, six of us, and we, we figured out ways to make things happen, to find space to work, to, to work with the folks at Washington. And essentially, after about two months of preps, we went, uh, we traveled over to Spain. That's where the aircraft is manufactured. It's actually manufactured by airbus Owns EADS CASA. And uh, we arrived for what turned out to be almost two and a half months of factory training on how to fly the aircraft. And when I say two and a half months, the way they do things in Spain is a little bit different. So that's a couple days a week, three days a week, four hours a day and then maybe another four or five days of holiday in there. (laughs) So that's the way they do things over there. So it was slightly frustrating because we're all away from our families and we're like, oh, let's go, let's get this done. We want to make things happen. Um, So we had about a month and a half of ground schools. Again, it was a little bit slow. And then we went into where they were going to teach us to fly the aircraft. And uh, part of the delays too was the aircraft just actually wasn't ready for us yet. And there's a lot of little steps that have to take place, I and mean, basically, you know, before we can actually fly the aircraft, the Coast Guard has to essentially pay for and accept the aircraft. So as you can imagine, there's quite a bit of paperwork and inspections and approvals before the Coast Guard would basically sign the paper saying that first aircraft is now ours, and, and here's the check, you know. So there were some delays there, too. So we finally got that done. We, we, uh, we did the inspections. We did the acceptance um, procedures for the aircraft, and we essentially paid wrote the check. We each got, I guess I got about seven hours in the aircraft. It's just the basic, hey, here's how to take off. Here's how to land. Here's where the controls are. We had a uh, Rockwell Collins avionics system in it, which wasn't normal for the, like, they don't have that normally in the aircraft. They normally use a TALUS, which is a French-made system. So they didn't really know anything about our avionics. So there was no instruction in that so uh that was it that was about it seven hours seven flights seven hours and then we were assigned to uh we had to get the airplane home for christmas that was uh, what we were told the commandant wants his airplane for christmas so we rushed and uh but we did a lot of planning i had never flown over the ocean before but uh had to plan a flight over the atlantic and an aircraft that doesn't quite have the range to get across the atlantic (laughs) Having never done it before and having had only like about seven and a half hours in this, in this particular airplane. So uh, it was cool. It went, it, luckily, it went really well, but it was, it was interesting. Um, the route that we flew, like I said, we couldn't get across the normal way. So we ended up flying from Spain uh, down to Cape Verde, which is a small island off of Africa, and Cape Verde to Br- Fortaleza, Brazil, which is a, a big crossing. It's about an eight and a half hour over the ocean uh, crossing. And then Fortaleza, Brazil to Barbados, and then Barbados up to Florida and then North Carolina. So it was interesting because uh, we were on this flight coming back and we were learning the uh, this avionic system along the way. I'll never forget when we were in the air and the the computer's telling us that we're going to run out of gas three hours before our destination. <laughs> and we knew that was wrong. We just didn't know how to use the damn thing. So we are there just punching the numbers, you know, trying to figure the darn thing out. And so we actually learned a lot. We, we learned probably as much, if not more, during during this first transatlantic flight, taking the darn thing back to the U.S. than, than we did over the... Uh, seven flights that we got by the factory pilots in Spain. Not to say they didn't do a good job, because they did. So, uh, you know, the first step was to get these, these things back, and uh, I ended up flying the first two back from Spain to the U.S. And this is basically, it's a civil aircraft. It, it, it's militarized, but it didn't come with, you know, a military flight manual, um, anything like that. It came with a very basic international style civil flight manual. So we had to write a Coast Guard military flight manual that not just covered how to fly it from A to B and how to take off and land, but all the operational procedures that that we had to do with this aircraft. So really uh, over the next year and a half, once we had these back in the States, our first job was to do a bunch of what we call design test and evaluation, or DT&E, where we spent a lot of time at uh, Patuxent River, Maryland, at the NAS test center there, and uh, just doing tons and tons of flights. To, to basically figure out how the systems work, to figure out the envelopes in which we could use the systems, and figure out the performance specs of the aircraft. And, and once we got done that, we brought it back to Alabama, and then we did with the next phase, which is called OT&E, or Operational Test and Evaluation, which is about another six months of actually developing all the procedures and figuring out the best way, step by step, of how to do everything. And then we had to write the manual, you know. And of course, we were writing the manual the whole time, and I think we talked. It was really interesting, you know, when we were first flying this thing, we, we really didn't have a checklist. So we had a checklist. It was written in pencil. And it was rewritten in pencil every day. Every time we came back from a flight, we would erase and add things to the checklist for the aircraft. So, and then that's how we figured things out. I mean, I, I'll never forget the first time we did a touch-and-go because we didn't do touch and goes in Spain. That's just something, for some reason, they don't do. They only do full stops. So. Uh, it was myself and another pilot's His name was Chris Buckridge, and he said well let's, let's figure out what's the best way to do a touch and go in this airplane. <laughs> and, you know, it sounds simple a touch and go is a touch and go but when you got a complex airplane and you've got a um, like a what we call a constant torque hold system where you, there's buttons you actually have to press after you push in power and flap settings and swapping and controls and everything else in a two-pilot cockpit it's not as simple as it as it might sound so just figuring out the little nuances and and the first couple touch and goes, we said, well, it didn't really work too well. And we change it and change it. And then we come back and we write down exactly how we did the touch and go and what worked best. And for example, I'll tell you, like myself and another pilot's name was Mike Cerrutto. And Mike and I had to write the emergency procedures for the aircraft. And it's about 110 pages in the manual of maybe 70 different procedures. So Mike and I would sit there and try and think of, OK, well, let's look at other airplanes and all the things that they write in their books that can go, that might go wrong, that can go wrong. or the airplanes that we've flown in the past? What does that look like? And then we sit there and brainstorm, but with this specific aircraft, what are there some things that can go wrong and how do we deal with them? And then Mike and I would go out to the airplane and we'd spend eight hours, literally, sometimes sitting in the airplane with the props turning on the ramp. Just pushing buttons and figuring out, like if this light came on or if this thing came on, what's the best way? What's the process? And then we write it out, and then we test it, and then we write it. You know, and a lot of times you hear in the military that those flight manuals are written in blood, and uh, because a lot of the times those emergency procedures are written due to due to accidents and incidences. And luckily, we we haven't, and to this day haven't had any of those in in that particular aircraft. But uh, but you certainly do make changes, and you do find out later on that there's always a better way when when the shit hits the fan for real, <laughs> rather than just simulating it on a ramp, you, you always find a better way to do it. Airplane was like driving a big dump truck. And I say that because I came from flying a Falcon 20. And there was a period where I was dual qualified. So I, was, I would fly the Falcon in the morning and fly the, you know, the AC-144 the in the afternoon. And, and if i if I went from the AC-144 to the Falcon, I was was overcontrolling it for the first ten seconds to fly because <laughs> you can fly the Falcon with your fingertips, and AC-144 was literally like you know driving the dump truck with a giant giant wheel. However, I mean it wasn't necessarily a pilot's airplane from the point of view that it wasn't real cool and it wasn't fast. But from an older pilot's interview, or point of view, it was it was wonderful because it had a uh, it had a galley. It had an oven, it had a full laboratory, it had headroom, I could stand up all the way. I could walk to the back, it had a crew rest area. We had uh, you know, workstations and tactical workstations in the back, because primarily it was a reconnaissance airplane. So, um, you know, you could go back and sit down. We had, you know, uh, satellite internet, so check the weather, change, you know, do everything that you could do, sit at home on a computer from the back if you needed to, and uh, it was very reliable. It burnt um, less than half the fuel per hour than the Falcon did. We could stay out there for 10, 11 hours if we needed to. So from an operational standpoint, it was awesome compared to the Falcon. The the reconnaissance systems on board, the radars, the electrical, optical imaging, the, the infrared, the FLIR, the other stuff that was on the aircraft was so much better than what we had. And then the fact that we could stay on scene for such a long period of time I mean, we tripled our success rate as far as interdictions went when we moved to this new aircraft. So, it was very successful. Uh, typical everyday mission is to go out and find drugs and illegal migrants. At least, you know, where we were at, if you're in Miami or Texas, maybe the, the guys stationed up north, it's a little bit different, it's more about reconnaissance on, on um, fishing. but. Ours was drugs and illegal migrants, and there was plenty of that in South Florida and through the Caribbean. So my last duty station, we were stationed in Miami, but our area of operation was the entire Caribbean. You know, the entire Caribbean, and so not only do we have planes in Miami, but we always had planes down in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and Puerto Rico as well on patrol. That would that would patrolling daily, and it was just every every day. Um, I mean, it's it's Sabbath every day. There's Cubans, there's Haitians as far as migrants go, and there's uh, just a constant stream of, uh, you know, narcotics, and when we say narcotics, we're talking like big, big loads, like 2,000 kilo loads of cocaine and marijuana that, you know, we're out there finding at most of the flyings at night, most of it's on night vision goggles, most of it's covert lights out, so they have no idea we're there. We, we detect, we find the 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 illegal activity, we monitor the illegal activity covertly, lights out, while we're calling in, because we had a, a great system of communications on board the aircraft. So, you know, we had partners. We worked with, obviously, our Coast Guard partners, but we also worked with um, DEA and uh, Customs and Border Patrol and uh, military partners that we would uh, make the interdiction. With. And so basically, we are out there, monitor, and then we had the, either the helicopter or the small boats, whoever our partners is, come in, uh, light them up, and then we light them up, you know, make the interdiction, and then we go home. So that was our primary mission, but the neat thing about the aircraft was it was, uh, it was also a rescue aircraft. So we also were a 24 seven rescue and response, and we had rafts and we had dewatering pumps, other items on board that we could drop out the back of the ramp. Of course, a fixed wing aircraft can't pull them out of the water, but we can always drop a raft and or water, gear, food, anything else that somebody in distress would need until we can get a boat or helicopter on scene. And then uh, finally it was a logistics aircraft as well. So all those uh, tactical workstations in back were on a pallet that within 30 minutes you can roll it out of the back. All the seats come out of the back. You can fit up to 45 seats for transporting people. You can put a full-size pickup truck in the back, a couple of them actually, Um, you can put pallets of gear. So we would also do transport missions. And some of the more unique ones I did like was during Deepwater Horizon where uh, I transported a couple loads of brown pelicans 73 of them per load to Texas to get them to a refuge after they had been, you know, contaminated by the oil. So they'd be cleaned up and then we bring them to refuges. And I tell you what, the smell of 72, 73 brown pelicans, uh, yeah, on a small airplane, so this is not good. And uh, I also transported a live, full-size live dolphin from NAS New Orleans to uh, Marathon, Florida, and it was in an open tank. And that was pretty cool because you'd have got this, you know, like 1,200-pound dolphin in an open tank of water. And the trainer's in there, in the tank, trying to keep the dolphin calm so it doesn't splash the water out of the tank and the airplane, of course. We're thinking, like, okay, this is going to have to be, like, the smoothest takeoff and landing that we've ever done in our lives so (laughs) this dolphin doesn't get agitated the water doesn't come out of the tank. So, you know, you always get to do neat missions like that, too. We we do sometimes, we do prisoner transport a lot down... uh, you know, where these guys would get arrested in the Caribbean for, for counter-narcotic smuggling. We'd assist the DEA and go down there and have the bad guys and leg shackles and cuffs and DEA agent with them, bring them back up for arraignment and processing. I retired two years ago, essentially. Well, uh, yeah, I went on terminal leave on June, in June of 2014, and uh, which is essentially retirement. It just means that you saved up a bunch of leave and you get paid until your official retirement date, but don't have to work. But yes, I, I flew the airplane. My last day on my retirement day, I flew the airplane. It was just kind of, neat. I retired out of the airplane. I got to have my whole family and friends out there do a flyover, come back, jump out of the airplane, have my retirement ceremony. For me, that was the way to go. So it was, it was a super. For me, it was, a, it was, it was the best time of my military career because it's very rare in the military that you have so much freedom to make those kind of changes or or to figure things out normally it's a very structured system where you're told exactly how it's going to be and it's a certain uh, manual or regulation and we had a good year where we had tons of freedom to sort of do things our own way and there was a lot of trust there and and figure things out so I really enjoyed that. (laughs)
0: Travis Burns has been retired from the Coast Guard for two years now. He said that there are about 17 HC-144s in service today, and the Coast Guard will continue using them for decades to come. Today, Travis is a co-owner and flight instructor of Aviator PPG, which is a powered paragliding flight school and equipment retailer in Lake Wales, Florida.
1: Uh, Which is uh, something that I got into about six years ago, and it became a passion, truly, and I say this to everybody, uh, I like flying airplanes for utilitarian purposes. It's awesome. I really But for pleasure, pleasure flying, there's nothing like a paramotor flying. And, and if somebody was to put a lineup of 10 beautiful airplanes in front of me and, and then a paramotor and tell me, hey, which one do you want to pick in order to go for an hour long pleasure flight? I'm going to pick the paramotor every time. It really doesn't matter what else they put in front of me. So
0: I definitely agree. You can check out pictures of Travis and the HC-144, along with more information about these stories and Aviator PPG by going to the article at the logbookpodcast.com. This episode was supported directly by your donations. If you enjoy the show, you can support its production by becoming a patron. Through Patreon, you set a donation level that is given every time a new episode is released, and you can always set a monthly limit so you don't go over your budget. Depending on the amount donated, you are granted access to different rewards that are as simple as hearing a sneak preview to the next episode, all the way up to exclusive content that didn't make it into the show. Any amount is helpful, and the more that it's donated, the more the show can improve. Head over to our website, thelogbookpodcast.com, and click on the Patreon banner at the side of the page to start supporting. Also, don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps bring awareness to the logbook. If you have a story about anything in aviation, we would love to hear it, and it may even become an episode of the logbook. You can send us an email by using the contact page on our website. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you come back for the next entry in the logbook.